Let me ask you, have you ever heard of a Potemkin village? You ever heard that phrase, Potemkin village? Some of you are like, okay, that might be ringing a bell. Let me tell you where it comes from. Catherine the Great, uh, in the 1700s, she is the great Russian empress. She had a field marshal by the name of Grigory Potemkin. And she was going to take a tour of southern Russia in the Crimea region. Uh, the Russians had actually taken over from the Ottoman Empire, and she was going to take a tour to look at it. Now, this tour was took four years in its planning, okay? And so, Grigory Potemkin, as the field marshal, he what he wanted to do was give the impression that this Crimea region was a great place to live. And that despite the fact that it had been devastated by war, that it had made a re remarkable recovery. And it was a desirable place. In fact, Russians seemingly were moving in and inhabiting it, and this was going to give a favorable, favorable impression to Catherine the Great. Well, in 1787, she takes her voyage. She's on a barge, and she would look, and she would see these, like, villages that just seemed to have cropped up out of nowhere. And indeed, that's what it was. They were actually fake villages. They were merely facades of different buildings and houses, and it gave the impression that everything was great, and look at all the development that's taken place. And to make matters more interesting, Potemkin actually had his people act like they were enjoying themselves being in the village and everything was going on, and after the barge would pass and eventually it would dock, they would actually move their portable village and move it downstream so when she would drive, float past it the next time, she would actually see, and I don't know if uh, Catherine the Great had bad eyesight or she was not a woman with a particular high level of attention to detail, but she never caught on. And Potemkin was able to pull off this great ruse that things were fine in the Crimea. And that's where we get the, the words Potemkin village. In our vocabulary, it refers to an impressive facade or show created to hide an undesirable fact or condition. Do you want to know, where does North Korea get the idea to put up all these false buildings or just fronts? He learned it, they learned it, from Potemkin. And I have to wonder, in the Western church, especially in the United States, how much is the Western church, the church in the United States, just kind of like a Potemkin village? We got numbers, we got glitz, we got a little sizzle, but very little depth. I would say that truth be told, there are probably a lot of followers of Christ, they would identify themselves as Christians, that are just living off the spirituality of others. They pray and read the scriptures actually very little. In fact, if they didn't even make an appearance at a church, they may have actually no contact with God's Word. They may be enslaved to pornography and romance novels. They're more judgmental than grace-oriented. Uh, they kind of treat God as like their personal assistant. And so ever, if they're in trouble, why it's like calling the, the uh, volunteer fire department to kind of show up and, and, and achieve a rescue. And they kind of function like that. Many Americans are so busy pursuing the American dream, and we're so distracted by everything else that we actually have very little time for the advancement of the gospel or, or making disciples. And when it comes to spirituality, you need to know something. God does not want our spirituality to be superficiality. He wants us to be a people of depth. 
that know him, to know this goodness, and that we have maturity in our life. We, God does not want us to be Potemkin people. So, how does God move us past inch-deep Christianity? How does God develop his people as people of depth that have more than just a facade when it comes to their faith? Well, the answer to that question is found in the text we're looking at today. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. And let's just read it. He simply says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If you want to become a person of true spiritual depth, this is the text. That's why I've got it underlined, I've got it marked, because this is life. And he says, beginning, rejoice always. It's a present imperative, it's a command to do something as a way of life, like a lifestyle. And he says, rejoice, rejoice always. And the idea of rejoicing is to give God praise and thanksgiving for who he is and how he's acted, for his, his goodness. And what it does is it actually yields a confidence in our life when we learn to rejoice and focus our attention upon God. It's very interesting, the Bible, when it speaks of joy, actually doesn't tie our joy to circumstances. You and I do that. We have, we believe, a sense of joy when things are going well. We're happy when it's happening the way we want it. But that's actually not how the Bible presents joy. God presents that we can have joy even in the midst of hardship and difficulty because we actually have God himself. We know him. God pictures joy as like people that are deep and have stable roots in himself that despite whatever weather we're in, we've got roots, we've got structure, we've got strength, we have Him. And joy in Christ in the midst of difficulty is something that the Bible presents time and time again. Like as we started this book, 1 Thessalonians, do you remember how they received the word? You can see it, chapter 1, verse 6. It says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Actually, outside, they had what? Problems, difficulty, tribulation. But inside, they had joy. Why? Because they had Jesus. And that makes all the difference. And when you think about your life, I mean, there's obviously some pleasant details of things that are going well, but there's likely some things that are not going so well. You're facing difficulty, relationship breakdown. You've got health issues. The mechanic gave you bad news. I don't know if they trained those guys, like, oh, I don't really want to tell you this. And then they tell you, yeah, they got $450 repair, right? I just saw one of you look at each other like, how did you know? Because that's life, right? We have broken relationships, broken vehicles. There's things that are not right. We're waiting. It's difficult. It's painful. There are trials at home. There's inconveniences. And what we need to do, though, is learn how can we put this text into play? There's nothing like rejoicing in the Lord that renews us to God's presence. In the book of Philippians, Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again, that's no trouble for me, but it's a safeguard for you. I keep writing and talking about rejoicing in the Lord because it's a safeguard. It like functions like a guardrail. 
It keeps you from going over the emotional cliff cliff when you keep focusing on Jesus. And so he says, rejoice in the Lord. But this is here where a lot of Christians get stuck. They believe in Jesus. They understand they got forgiveness of sins. But yet their life seems like it's so difficult. And they're running on fumes. And they're discouraged. And they're depressed. How do you really rejoice in the Lord? How do you express praise and thanksgiving to God, especially when it's difficult? Well, let me just tell you what you do. We rejoice in the Lord by praising Him and thanking Him for who He is, for what He does, and for what He gives. We praise God and thank God. You're intentional to praise Him and thank Him for who He is, that He's loving, that He's just, that He's gracious, that He's giving, that He's faithful. You praise Him for what He does in the past. Remember how God worked in your life? In the present, you see Him moving in the future. How He has all eternity secure. And for what He gives. He gives grace and hope and joy and peace and love and forgiveness. All of this strength, it, it comes from Him. And so to rejoice always is to just intentionally thank God and to praise God for who he is, what he does, and what he gives. Now, that doesn't mean that, like, everything in life is just happy and joyful. Like, for instance, if you take a hammer and you're trying to pound a nail, but you hit your hand instead, or you stub your toe, or you wreck your car, you know, like, great, hallelujah, rejoice in the Lord, isn't this great? Now, joy in the Lord is never divorced from reality. Joy in the Lord is the deep understanding that knowing that even in the midst of my trouble and my heartache, Jesus is there, and that he's good, and that God is in control. He's, he's sovereign. But the problem is, with this text for us, rejoice always, is that we don't feel like rejoicing. And so many of us think that we have a feelings-based faith. What I feel dictates how I behave. I feel like doing this, so I will. I don't feel like doing this, so I won't. And that's the problem. God doesn't want us to have a feelings-based faith. He wants us to have a fact-based faith. Our faith is based on truth. And so what we do is we read a text like this, and we understand God wants us to learn to rejoice always. It's not that your emotions are, are wrong or not important. Absolutely. In fact, you're created by with emotions because you're created by God and you're created in His image to experience the fullness of life. But He wants you to rejoice always by finding your joy not in your circumstances, but in God Himself. If you are waiting to feel great before you rejoice in the Lord, some of you are going to be waiting a long time. Right? So what we do is we rejoice. You see, faith is never meant to be passive. It is active. You are actively engaged. And so what you do is you learn to direct your focus upon Jesus. You see, we live in the horizontal. And what, once we come to know Christ, we now have the capacity for a vertical perspective toward God because we're now in Christ. But the world keeps pulling us down into the horizontal. We just see things in the here and the now. But you and I direct our souls back to God. If you want a great text on this, remember like Psalm 103? He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So who is he talking to? 
Anybody else? Bless the Lord, O my soul. You see that? That's right. He is directing his soul to find his focus upon God. I get the idea that he's like a lot of us, like me, where I don't feel like blessing the Lord at all times. Right? So what do you do? Well, I don't feel like it, so I won't. Wrong. This is how you and I grow deep and mature. We learn to direct our focus upon Jesus, whether we feel like it or not. So, like he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Look what, look how God's been so good to you. And then he just starts going on, remember? Who pardons all your iniquities and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns your life with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. You see, what he's doing is he's recalling how good God is, what he does, what he gives. And friends, when we focus on Jesus, we find ourselves rejoicing. And that changes everything. You know, those distressing feelings that we've got, they start dissipating. Sooner versus later, when we learn to rejoice in the Lord. Now, this isn't like, well, I want God to do something for me, so I'm going to manipulate God. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord with the idea that he's going to do this for me, or he's going to do what I want. It doesn't work that way. We rejoice in God for who he is. And, and regardless of how he works it out, our joy is found in him and not in our wavering circumstances. And, you know, God understands that we're far from perfect. You know, like, in this room, we are all, like, a big mess, aren't we? We have all sorts of issues. God knows that. We're, we're sinful. In our time of prayer just a few minutes ago, we were confessing sin. Why? Because even as people who know Christ, we still sin. And sometimes we think, like, wow. I can't rejoice in the Lord because I'm such a miserable wretch. God probably has me on mute. He doesn't even want to hear from me. Wrong. He does. And you and I bring God great glory that even in the midst of our unstable life sometimes, less than perfect life, we rejoice in the Lord. C.S. Lewis said this, We may honor God more in our low times than in our peak times. It's as if God finds a special joy when we rejoice in him, even when life seems to be falling apart and we're far from perfect. You see, when we rejoice in the Lord, what happens is our faith is strengthened. Our peace is increased. When we rejoice in the Lord, what happens is that our mind is renewed. Our life is changed. When we rejoice in the Lord, you know what happens? Our testimony validated. And you know what happens? Our God is exalted. So that's why he says, rejoice in the Lord always. You see, when we, we give thanks to God, when we praise God for who he is, when we set our sights upon him, whether it's privately or publicly in like a setting like this, when we're just telling others or when we're just telling God, what happens is God is exalted and our lives are enriched and we become people of spiritual depth. Several years ago, we had a lady in our church who just had a series of major health issues. And it seemed like she was always in the hospital. And for oftentimes long periods of time. One time I visited her, uh, she had been in the hospital for 12 straight days. Things weren't looking good. And when I talked with her, she looked me in the eyes and she said this, and I wrote it down because I thought it was so, so profound. She said this, if you go deep enough, you will find joy in the midst of your struggle if... You focus 
on him. And that's what we do. We learn to direct our attention and focus upon Jesus. You see, God's will is for worship to become our way of life. You want to be a person of spiritual depth? Rejoice always. Notice the next verse. Pray without ceasing. If you want to be a person of spiritual depth, we have to learn how to develop prayer as just an active, ongoing part of our life. Prayer is simply communicating with God. And to do so without ceasing is that it becomes a way of life. It doesn't mean that, well, that's the only thing I do, so I just, I just pray. I just, I just pray, I pretty much am like by my bed, and I go to my next room and I pray. Maybe I do some beads and I just keep praying, and I pray over and over. Actually, that's not the idea here. The idea is not repetitious prayer so much as it's a lifestyle of prayer. Like even the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, he makes a very strong emphasis that you and I need to learn how to work and work hard. Why? Because we're designed by for work by God to give glory to God in whatever we do. Not just the stuff at church, but in everything. But it's as we go through our day and with our family and at school and in our jobs that we are learning to pray as we make our way. And if you want, if I could just give you one word, the best piece of advice I ever received on developing a prayer life, I could give you one word. It's begin. That's it. Just begin. It's really not that hard. God wants to hear. He wants to engage you in this fellowship relationship, and so you begin. It's kind of like working out. Showing up to the gym or putting on your walking shoes is half the battle. You just begin. You just take the first step. And so it is with prayer. You, you simply start talking to God. And it kind of works this way. God is trying to develop his people to be people of depth. He'll bring people to mind, circumstances, situations. And what he intends is to train you and I that when he brings us to mind, we pray. It could be just a short 10 seconds. It could be a minute, but we learn to pray. We, we actually can develop for people. We, we actually pray with each other. It's not unnatural. It's supernatural. But we're learning to pray without ceasing. And if you're wondering, like, what good is prayer going to come anyway? I mean, God's got it all worked out, right? So why pray? And some of us, we function that way. The reason that you and I pray is because God incorporates us in the work that he is doing when we pray. He not only accomplishes work through the prayers of his people, that's how he sovereignly set it up, he also enriches our life and makes us deeper. We become deeply spiritual, a people of prayer. And we find that the more and more we, we grow, we see God's faithfulness and we see how this works. It's kind of like this. The more I grow, the more I pray. And the more I pray, the more I grow. That's just how it works. Works. You know, when you look at the book of Psalms, I love the book of Psalms, and they become significantly more meaningful to me the more I've grown as a Christian. They're, they're like the Old Testament prayer book. They're the, the hymnal for the Hebrew people. They're God's way of showing us what does an in-depth spiritual life look like. And I love them because they're real, they're raw, they're very relational, and they're so rich in deep theology. And so you see them just pouring out their heart before God. In fact, that's what they say in Psalm 52. And if, if you can't see God, you can't sense him, you say, God, where are you? And it's just so real. And that's what God desires. We praise him. We thank him. We tell him, listen, you need, I, I need your help. 
I can't do this. God, I'm going to praise your name. I'm going to give testimony of you and what you've done. Friends, that's the kind of prayer life we're supposed to develop in our lives. John Buchanan is the guy who said an atheist is a man who has no invisible means of support. That's right. The atheist, they don't pray. Why? They don't believe God exists. And even if they do see indications that he does, they're not about to bow their head or to ask for help. I'll tell you this. Pressure is inevitable. But prayer is a choice. My choice? It's your choice. We all got pressure, right? I've got pressure. The question is, will I push? You're going to find that peace comes from actively trusting God. And and God wants to develop us where we learn to wait upon Him, to develop perseverance, to develop a confidence in Him. There's a a pastor by the name of H.B. Charles Jr. He wrote a book called It Happens After Prayer. And he gives this illustration that just I found to be so helpful in terms of understanding perspective when it comes to prayer. And he writes about this hot afternoon. It's at a farmer's market. And people are coming to get all their produce. There's a particular lady that uh, wanted to get some grapes. There was one farmer that was just known to have, like, excellent produce. And, of course, there would be a line because they like this guy. They especially like the stuff that he brought to the market. So she's waiting, and the farmer is giving personal attention and meeting all the needs of the people that are waiting in line. And it's hot, and she just wants her grapes. And she finally is the next person in line. He's up there. She sees the farmer, and he goes, what can I help you with? And she goes, I need some grapes. He goes, oh, no, excuse me for a minute. I, I gotta go. She's like, what? And the farmer walks off. And she's like, she's like, starting to get steamed. She's already hot. She's a little ticked off. And she's having all these bad thoughts about the farmer and what a bad guy he is and how mean he is and how he doesn't care about her. And she's waiting a couple minutes just thinking, that didn't happen for anybody else. They just got what they wanted. And here I am standing here. And he leaves. And then the farmer comes back and he's got in his hands. He's got these awesome grapes. They're huge. She, she sees them and he goes, here, try these. And she tries and says, this is the best grape I've ever had in my life. And he said, well, I'm, I'm sorry I kept you waiting. But I had to take some time to get you my very best. And that's how it works with God. He's bringing his very best. But you and I, we might need to wait. And you and I may not see it. Like, how could this be the best? You have to understand, God works from the spectrum of eternity. You and I, we're kind of like the here and now. But God is always working out his very best. And sometimes, you and I, we need to learn how to wait. How to wait on him to solve a problem or to meet a need or to open a door. But let me assure you, our God is at work. And God wants us to develop as people, people with depth. So we rejoice always. We pray without ceasing. Why? Because God's will is for worship to become a way of life. And finally, just isn't this a great text? If you want to become a person of spiritual depth, look at verse 18. We not only rejoice always and pray without ceasing, but what? We also in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything give thanks. Now, I want to say something. This could be really helpful. He does not say give thanks for all circumstances. Make sure you get the right preposition. It is in 
everything. You see that? In everything, give thanks. Because frankly, some of our circumstances are unbearable. They are difficult. Just look at our prayer chain and the issues and the problems that are on there. What he says is not for everything, because frankly, some of that stuff is just evil and bad. It's wrong. It's part of the fallen world, fallen humanity. But he says, give thanks in everything. Find what you can to give thanks for, for how God is at work. And this is God's will for you and I, that we learn to be a people that express and experience gratitude. We learn to give God thanks as a way of life, and we're actually thankful as we engage with others. And there is great benefit if you and I will develop an attitude of gratitude. In fact, there's been some rather interesting studies that have affirmed that if you and I become a person of gratitude, it has a lot of positive benefits in our life. In 2010, the Wall Street Journal had an article on, that summarized some of this research. And let me just read you an excerpt. Adults who frequently feel grateful have more energy, more optimism, more social connections, and more happiness than those who do not, according to studies conducted over the past decade. They also are less likely to be depressed, envious, greedy, or alcoholics. They earn more money, sleep more soundly, exercise more regularly, and have greater resistance to viral infections. Anybody interested in that? That would be. And uh, he says, it's, it's from attitude of gratitude. But listen to this. Now, researchers are finding that gratitude brings similar benefits in children and adolescents. Studies also show that kids who feel and act grateful tend to be less materialistic, get better grades, set higher goals, complain of fewer headaches and stomach aches, and feel more satisfied with their friends, families, and schools than those who don't. And then the article concluded this. A lot of these findings are things we learned in kindergarten or our grandmothers told us, but now we have scientific evidence to prove them. Giving thanks, always, is like rejoicing. It's deeply rooted in a very good theology, that God is good and that he is sovereign, that he's in control. And so we give him thanks, thanks in every circumstance. We look for the things to be thankful for, even in the midst of all the disasters and all the problems that we're facing. You know, like Romans 8, 28, we know that God is working all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, called according to his purposes, right? What is that good? You don't have to guess. The very next verse, he tells us. Verse 29 in Romans 8, he is conforming us to the image of Jesus. You see, as we go through the difficulties and we give thanks to God, we rejoice in him, he's shaping us to be like Jesus, to know Jesus, to have depth, a greater heart, greater stability, all of the many benefits that just come from the gospel of grace of knowing Jesus and knowing the riches of being in relationship with him. I will tell you that thanklessness, thanklessness, that is actually the condition of the lost. Those, remember like in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, he said, for even though they knew God, they know about God, they see in God we trust them their money, they know about God, they even been to church, maybe are in a church, but they don't give thanks. He says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, 
or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Failure to give thanks for all the many blessings, just to kind of live life, never being thankful. Friends, that was like B.C., before Christ. Now that we know Jesus, now that we see his blessings, our eyes are open, once we're blind, now we can see. It's meant to lead to gratitude in our life, and there's so much to be thankful for. Like Psalm 106, we are thankful that he's good, that his loving kindness is everlasting, never ceases. We're thankful for his power, for his presence. We're thankful that Christ has delivered us. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've got forgiveness, all because of the gospel. If you don't know what the gospel is, the gospel is God's good news that Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life. He died and paid the penalty for sin, and he rose again on the third day. The bad news is that you and I are wretched sinners. The good news is that God loves us so much that he sent his son to pay the penalty for those sins so that you and I who believe may enjoy God forever, to know Jesus personally. And so we thank God. We thank God for the gospel, for wisdom, for strength, for help, for the triumph of the gospel, the movement of making disciples around the nations. God's at work, and we're thankful. You know, sometimes, though, we don't feel like being thankful. I find that. I wish I could just say that I just jump out of bed, and I'm just full of gratitude. And as I go through the day, first thing on my mind is, how can I give God more thanks? It doesn't work that way, though, for me. Um, Dr. John G. Mitchell, he was the founder of Mormon School of the Bible. He was a mentor of a guy who discipled me. He said this, To give thanks when you don't feel like it is not hypocrisy, it's obedience. So who are you going to obey? You? Your feelings? Or God? And so he says, in everything, give thanks. You know what? This is God's will, his desire for you. That you and I are thankful people. About a month ago, there was a lady in our church, and she was telling me about this poem that she has. I don't know if she has it up in her house or what, but it was so good. I thought, hey, you need to send me that. And so she did. I wanted to share this with you. It's simply titled, Thank You, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for toys to pick up, for it means that you bless me with a child. Thank you, Lord, for the mowing and raking and weeding I have to do, because it means you bless me with a yard to take care of. Thank you, Lord, for the piles of laundry that never end, and never end, never end, because it means I have plenty of clothes to wear. Thank you, Lord, for the dirty dishes and pans in the sink, for it means that I have food to eat. Thank you, Lord, for the dusting and the vacuuming I need to do, for it means that you blessed me with a home to care for. John Workward says this, more gratitude will not come from more acquisitions, but from more from awareness of God's presence and God's goodness. Isn't that interesting? That's kind of how it works. We think that if, well, God will give me this, and I get this, and this, and this, I will be more thankful. But in reality, the opposite is true. You see, the bigger our sense of entitlement, the smaller our sense of gratitude. If you think that you deserve all of this, and you've heard all of this, and it's all mine, and you've got this entitlement mentality, which is pretty prevalent in our culture, then you likely have very little gratitude in your life. You see, an entitlement mindset erodes gratitude. Now, if you're a parent, how many of you parents want to uh, train up children 
that are totally ungrateful. Never say thanks, just filled with ingratitude. Anybody? No. But isn't it interesting? Being grateful doesn't come naturally. Like you have to train them and train them and train them. I'm still working on it. And why? It doesn't come naturally. But yet, you understand how important it is to good relationship and good fellowship. I got news for you. God has the exact same desire for his children. He doesn't want us to be ungrateful, entitlement mindsets. Actually, isn't it sweet to hear, thank you. Thank you, mom. Hey, thank you, dad. Thank you, your grandparents. Thank you, your friends. Thank you, your coworkers. And you hear that? That just, that just changes everything. It's like so that oil to your relationships and makes them smooth. God wants to develop gratitude in his people. That we're a thankful people. We're just overwhelmed with his goodness and his joy. You know, gratitude arises from imperfection. Sometimes we have the idea that, well, when I have perfect, perfect circumstances and I'm around perfect people and things are going well, then I'll be grateful. Actually, gratitude arises from imperfection. We're grateful for imperfect people and doing so in imperfect circumstances. If I wait for perfect people and perfect circumstances, guess what? You're going to be waiting a long time. It's not going to happen. So we learn to express gratitude. Because one day, all the pain and the difficulties and the suffering in this life, God is going to overcome and overturn. And so we're thankful. You know, there's a lot that we can learn from people that have experienced deep trials and yet have a deep faith. In fact, if you're going through deep trials right now and just looking around, I know some of you are, God is cultivating a deep faith in you. Like Helen Keller, I think we're all familiar with her. She's born June 27, 1880. 19 months later, she has a severe illness, and she ends up being blind and deaf for the rest of her life. We're familiar with Helen Keller, but there was her faith was really what drove her. And of course, we just kind of ignore that when we're teaching it to our children. But listen to what she communicated about giving thanks. Quote, For three things, I thank God every day of my life. This is our blind and deaf Helen. Thanks that he has granted me knowledge of his works. Deep thanks that he has set in my darkness the lamp of faith. Isn't that good? Set in my darkness the lamp of faith. And deep, deepest thanks that I have another life to look forward to. A life joyous with light and flowers and heavenly song. Friends, that's, that's the eternal perspective. You know, we're glad for our friends, and we're, we're happy and thankful that we got jobs, and, and we've had some success and money and food. Those things, of course, we're grateful for. But the absence of those things is not meant for us to become ungrateful. Because after all, we have the greatest gift of them all, which is God himself. So whether we have success or failure, we have little or much, we're living in a palace or a prison, we've got Jesus. And we can be grateful. Because friends, that changes everything, because everything we need, we have in Christ. So tomorrow when you're making lunch, or as you're going to school, or as you're um, at the job, instead of tuning in on the radio and getting depressed by another round of bad news, why don't we just take some time to go deep? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks. Whether you're at work or you're working out, God wants worship to become our way of life. I think many of you are familiar with the great missionary explorer, David Livingston. 
Uh, he served in Africa from 1840 till his death in 1873. And while he was trying to make his way to the interior of Africa, he, he became very sick. He couldn't drink the water. In fact, he was living off goat's milk with this goat that he had with him. And when he got to the interior in this very large area, uh, he could not enter this, this area until he met with the chief himself. And he was instructed on what he was to do, that he was to present to the chief everything that he had. And the chief would select something of his if he would allow him to come in to his territory, to his kingdom. And he in return would give David something. So when David Livingston finally got to the interior, he kind of got to the border of where he should be. And eventually he was met up with the chief and all of his people. And so David Livingston did. He put his books, all of his clothes, his watch, even the old goat. He put that out there. And the chief looked over everything. And he made a selection. And he selected the goat. And David Livingston, the goat is keeping me alive. He just took my goat. You know, there's one. And then in return, this chief gives him this like walking stick looking thing. He's got some marks on it and carved up there. And he gives him this walking stick and he takes his goat. And David Livingston is very upset. In fact, he was most disappointed. He starts griping to God. He was very upset because he's kind of like, I need that goat to live. He took my goat in more ways than one, right? And somebody heard him talking and griping about this, and one of his men explained this. That's not a walking cane. It's the king's very own scepter. And with it, you will find entrance to every village in our country. The king has honored you greatly. All of a sudden, he thought differently about that carved-up stick. And that carved-up stick, that king's scepter, that became his entrance into every village. In fact, when successive missionaries came, they all were able to make entrance because, because David Livingston got there first. We saw a lot of people place their faith and their trust in Jesus. And sometimes, in our disappointment, we're upset because of what we think we don't have. And we fail to appreciate the significance of what God has given us. You need to know something. The king has honored you greatly. He has given you himself. He has given you Jesus. And what we need for a deep spiritual life is right here. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything, give thanks. So friends, God's will for us is set for worship to become our way of life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing set of verses. God, help us to live them, to memorize them, to take them to heart. That this might be our reality, those in love with Jesus, because of your great grace for us. And Father, for anyone who is here who has never trusted in Christ, and you've now got their full attention, that they just simply pray with you and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin and I believe in Jesus this morning. I put my faith and trust in him. God, I'm asking that you would lead my life. And Lord, for all of us, may we not settle for status quo. May we have a faith that's far more than just a facade. May we be a people of stability, maturity, and depth in Christ. So God, would you do this? Do this work for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.